0: Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Sarah Burnback, who spent 35 years as a human resource management consultant, helping organizations to achieve peak performance, and was a sought after speaker at conferences across multiple industries. As a licensed clinical social worker, she worked as a family therapist in a juvenile and domestic relations court and became a certified journal facilitator in 2010. In her Encore career as a writer and author, Sarah is a six-time award winner in the Soul Making Keats literary competition, and her articles have appeared in numerous literary magazines and journals, as well as the Washington Jewish Week and the Jerusalem Post. Her memoir, A Daughter's Cottage, follows her journey through the year after her father's death. She lives in outside Washington, D.C. with her husband and enjoys traveling and being grandma to her seven grandchildren. Welcome, Sarah.
1: Thank you, Ronit. It's a
0: privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. I'm so happy we have this time together, and I've been really looking forward to talking with you about your memoir. Um, Thank you. To begin with, can you share a bit about A Daughter's Kaddish? And and here is a great opportunity also to give a little background on A Kaddish and, and what that is for those listeners who may not know.
1: Thank you. The Mourner's Kaddish is a prayer. It's spoken by people who are mourning, but... One would think that, therefore, it talks about death. It doesn't. It's a prayer that extols God. And in traditional Judaism, that prayer is recited for 11 months, twice a day after the death of a loved one. Now, my father believed that reciting that prayer would uh, redeem his soul, that when he died, his soul would rest in God's judgment stage, and God would look favorably upon him him and his soul if that Kaddish was recited. Now that traditionally is an obligation of sons. My father had only three daughters. So when my paternal grandfather died and my father was reciting the Kaddish for his father, he asked me at the time of his death to please hire a man to say the Kaddish for him. At the time, I was so caught off guard, I said, "Okay, Dad. But 23 years later, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I thought, there is no way I'm going to hire a stranger to speak to God on behalf of my father. And I ultimately convinced my father to give me his blessing. And I undertook this obligation for 11 months the challenge for me challenges were were several first of all my gender but most importantly because i traveled for my work i was in cities all over the country and these were the days if you can imagine before gps Mm -hmm. before uh, cell phones and i had to find a synagogue in every city that i traveled to a synagogue with a minion the kaddish is uh, required to be said in the presence of a, what's called a minion, not those little yellow cartoon characters, but a quorum <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> a quorum of 10 Jewish historically males. Um, the reason that that prayer is recited in that community is so that that community can give strength and comfort to the mourner. So not only did I have to find a synagogue in every city, but I also had to find a synagogue that had a morning and an evening service where they would have 10 people. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The the memoir is the story of my trying to incorporate these spiritual practices into a hectic 21st century Mm -hmm. life. I was a a single mom. I had two jobs. As you said, I was a, a therapist and I was also an HR management consultant and had a lot of challenges ahead of me.
0: Yes. And and the thing about Judaism, it's interesting to me because I grew up, and and this has come up once or twice before on this podcast, but I grew up really reform, which is, you know, another way of saying, I think, pretty casually, you know, Jewish, religiously, culturally Jewish, but very, you know, casual. So can I ask what the, the vibe was in your home when it came to Judaism growing up? Sure. Sure.
1: We didn't have any ritual observance in my family growing up. My father's father was Orthodox, um, but when he came to this country, he went into, he became a retail salesman. And of course, retail's primary day is Saturday, mm-hmm. so he gave up his uh, Sabbath observance. Uh, my father and mother started a conservative synagogue, and yet there was no ritual observance in our home. My father was what we call a -a once-a-year Jew. Mm -hmm. He went to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are the highest holy days in Judaism. But when his father died, he recited the Kaddish twice a day, every day, for 11 months for his father. And years later, when his mother died, he did the same for her. And then he went on to become a minion captain at his synagogue, making sure that there was a minion for other mourners every single Monday morning
0: mm-hmm, And in your book, you take great care to define Hebrew words and Jewish prayers and customs. You don't you don't put anything into the book that isn't then defined, and there's also um, a glossary at the end of the book. So what kind of readership did you envision when you were writing a daughter's Scottish? When did you realize that you were going to be educating readers as well as telling your story?
1: I always wanted to educate readers. I wanted to make sure, well, let me say it this way, grief is universal, sooner or later we all experience grief in our lives, and I thought my story had universal appeal. Once I found a publisher, my publisher said to me that my primary audience would be Jewish, a Jewish audience. What I have found since the book was published is that many people who are not Jewish, or even people who, like yourself, are Jewish but didn't grow up with a lot of Jewish ritual, have found that the book speaks to them on so many levels. I wanted to make sure that people who are not Jewish or even those who are, uh, like you said, culturally Jewish, would understand these rituals and these traditions. Mm -hmm. So part of my goal was to educate Jews and non-Jews alike.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and and your father and your losing him shaped who you are in so many ways. You write lovingly about your relationship with your father, and he really your relationship with him comes across so warmly and closely in the book. And I have a good relationship with my father, and I found myself feeling really inspired by and happy for you that you had this with your father, especially in contrast to the relationship you had with your mother, which I do want to talk about in a moment. But I was hoping you could read the passage from Midway about the Atlantic Ocean with your father.
1: I would be privileged to read that. Um, Living near the Atlantic Ocean as a child was a blessing On hot summer Long Island Sundays, my father and I would wake early and go to the Buttercrest Bakery to buy fresh, seeded rolls for our beach lunches. We would stand side by side in the kitchen, preparing sandwiches, always the same menu. I marveled as he cut the Hebrew national salami into thin slices and heaped them onto the rolls, adding Goulden's spicy mustard, only for those who, like me, preferred it. He'd wrap each sandwich into a little baggie with the precision of an engineer. Then I'd pack the fruit fresh plums, peaches, nectarines. My father's shining achievement was the lemonade he made in the two gallon Coleman jug with its black screw on top. He knew precisely how much ice and water to add to the frozen pink lemonade to make sure it tasted delicious no matter what time of the day. In that, he was like a magician. No watered-down lemonade for our pallets in the late afternoon. Not on his watch. Dad drove the family to the private beach at Point Lookout, reserved only for residents of our town. After parking the car, we unloaded the beach paraphernalia, folding chairs, beach blankets, towels, pails, shovels, lunch, and our multicolored striped umbrella, then crossed the concrete onto the sand. After we marked our spot, always close to the water's edge, Dad set up the chairs and planted the umbrella pole, pushing it and pulling it back and forth, first north to south, then east to west, until it made a hole deep enough to support the umbrella against the strongest wind. My sisters and I stripped down to our bathing suits and ran as fast as we could toward the ocean, giggling with excitement. Dad took his time methodically hanging his little transistor radio on the arm of his beach chair so it would be ready when the Yankees game began and carefully placed the business section of the New York Times on the seat. Only after everything was set to his satisfaction did he sprint into the ocean, wearing his trademark beige bathing trunks. My mother never joined our frivolity in the water, but my favorite activity was jumping into the waves from the diving board of my father's shoulders. He stood six feet two inches with a thin frame, but he was strong, a strength he gained from moving and delivering furniture in my grandparents' store and from playing weekly racquetball and baseball games. Dad crouched down in the water, his back to me, and raised his hands for me to grab. Steadied by his confidence and his gentle hands with their firm grip, I placed the arch of my right foot onto his right shoulder, then slowly lifted my left foot from the ocean floor and placed it on his left shoulder. I paused there, enthralled by the kaleidoscope of colors formed by beach umbrellas stretched as far as my eye could see, the sea breeze brushing against my face and the salty air filling my nostrils. Ten feet off the ocean floor, I saw the larger world, the one beyond our beach blanket, where the ocean and sky met and blended into one enormous space, In those split seconds, I was the queen of that expansive world. Ready, my father shouted above the roar of the ocean. It was both a question and a statement. All the while I wobbled, struggling to maintain my balance. Ready, I shouted. Then mirroring the spring of a diving board, he straightened his knees and stood upright, balancing on his thin legs, and pushed on my hands as he let go. Tossing me through the air and into the cold, vast ocean and teaching me a fearlessness that to this day makes risk-taking as natural as falling off his shoulders.
0: Thank you. You know, I just, I, I, I wanted you to read that, especially because I felt so much that I got to be there in the scene with you. And I wanted to ask you what it was like to write that scene? Was it one that you wrote early on or later in the process? And what, what did you want the reader to understand?
1: It's funny you would ask about that particular passage because I was in a journaling workshop in the early 1990s. And the instructor, Kate Thompson, who is one of the people who actually endorsed my book, Did a session on space. And we were to write about our favorite space. And to prompt us, she gave out pictures of different spaces, but they were all indoors. They were like libraries or reading rooms. And I thought, my favorite space is on top of my father's shoulders. (laughs) So I wrote this piece. She gave us, I don't remember, five or ten minutes to write in response to these prompts, photo prompts she gave us. And I wrote this piece, and the woman sitting next to me said, Oh, you have to read that. You have to read that out loud. Mm -hmm. And I did, and, um, and I've never changed it. This is what emerged in that workshop. And when I was writing my memoir, I decided to include this because it's a memory of my father and me in one of my most favorite places in the whole world, the beach, the ocean,
0: and on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And did you have a sense that you would be bringing your reader there with you?
1: I think any memoirist hopes to bring our readers with us, of course.
0: (laughs) The answer (laughs) is yes. Yes. I love this anecdote because it really came out of you the way it sort of stayed, is what you're saying. And at the same time, not only did it feel great to you to write it and the response was strong from the people who initially read it, it also does a lot of work. Right. So it's just Mm. it's a it's a beautiful synthesis that way. So Mm. I I have to pivot here and ask you what the experience for you was like to write about your mom, your mother, compared to writing about your father.
1: I tried to be kind to my mother and factual. I didn't want to use this cliche, throw her under the bus, Mm. but I wanted people to understand my relationship with my father. And part of my devotion to my father is because of how different he was from my mother.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And I showed a very early draft to my mother. And as you know, early drafts never look exactly like the finished product. Mm. But when she read that early draft, the first thing she said to me was, this makes me miss your father even more. So I thought, oh, okay. Great. <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> All right then. Was that was that sort of a blessing in your in your eyes? Was that I took it as permission. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. Had she did she see the parts in there where you you talk about and show the conflict between the two of you? All
1: of the parts about the conflict were there in the original draft except the part about the beating when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was strongly encouraged by my editor to include that, but Mm -hmm. all of the other parts about her dismissiveness, her uh, rejection of Jewish rituals during the Shiva home, the way she ignored the fact that I was a mourner, Mm -hmm. all of that was in the early draft that she saw. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So, does she, as far as you know, did she ever read the part of the beating?
1: No. My manuscript was submitted to my publisher at the same time that my mother died. Mm. So, while I was working on the editing with my publisher, uh, I was also grieving my mother. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, she did not ever see the finished product. And some people think that the finished product is out because she died, but anyone who has published knows that these books go to the publisher long before they hit the stands. Mm -hmm. And this book was written uh, before my mother's death
0: you do talk about that abuse uh, and it's interesting because I feel I felt as a reader that it was sort of like a slow build up, a slow burn because the conflict between the two of you and and the different um the differences in her treatment of you are, and the way your father treats you are obvious, but there's really only one scene depicting the physical violence and I am curious you sort of answered it a second ago, but I'm curious about the decision you made to, only include one instance of that and not others.
1: I felt like one was sufficient. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I didn't need to throw her under the bus. Mm-hmm. I wanted readers to understand my relationship with her, and particularly in the context of how that impacted my relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not my goal to destroy my mother or her image or her reputation.
0: Yeah. It is a it's a very powerful scene. It's it's economic and it's it does do a lot of heavy lifting. On page 121 you write, quote, I should have been used to moms, this is the way it is, edicts mm-hmm. after all these years, but strangely I never cease to be stunned by them. End quote. And this is later on, this is after your father is gone. Um, And you've been in the mourning process for a while. And I think that what this reminded me of this section of your book was that one of the enduring aspects of having parents or, you know, just being human is this constant hope that I see in my friends and in my peers and myself, that someone you love will change. And, you know, there's this surprise sometimes, or often when they don't, or, or they can't. It's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's two kinds of people in the world, the kind that know that people will never change and just <laughs> go, maybe they're happier. And then the rest of us who who feel like maybe this time it'll be different. So I'm hoping you could read um, from the section from Grief Squared that we discussed.
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to. And I think you and I have something in common there, because from what I read from your memoir, memoir my takeaway is that you also hoped your mother would change. Yeah. And what I learned is that hope dies hard. <laughs> um, you know, and, and
0: reading your book, you know, reading those, you know, I kept hoping.
1: I did. <laughs> I kept
0: thinking, ah, this is the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You see, uh, I so lived it's... my life that way. Oh, this yeah. is the moment! <laughs> oh goodness, yeah, yes. Please go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please go ahead and read that section. No, I'm happy
1: to. And I kept, as as I was reading your memoir, I kept thinking the same thing. Oh, this is the time she's going to come back. Oh, oh, the, no, no, she's not going to go. She's not going to go. Oh, she went. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so I'll read that passage that you refer to. Uh, it. My mother went to a movie by herself. It was the first time she had done that. Uh, It was several months after my father had died, and I was actually quite proud of her for that. So um, we had a conversation. She said, I went to a movie by myself the other night. It was a first. Her Her voice dropped off, and I sensed a muffled sniffle. That took guts, Mom. I'm sure Dad is proud of you. It's an enormous shift to go from living as a couple to being single, and especially in a place where lots of couples go. I had been single for the 12 years since my divorce, and I knew how loneliness can be magnified when you're alone among pairs of people. The contrast pierces you like the bright lights shattering the darkness after the movie ends. You've never lost a spouse of 54 years. You have no idea what it's like. True, Mom. But I've lost my dad, and I'm grieving too. I choked back the slow burn rising in my throat. We were both heartbroken over the loss of the same man, and I had hoped that our shared grief would bridge the lifetime of strain between us. Despite enduring decades of a soul crushing relationship, I still yearned for a heart to heart connection with my mother, even more so now that my father was gone. But hope dies hard now on the phone with her i continued to yearn wishing she could accept my empathy i know it's hard to shop and cook for one mom you wonder whether it's worth the effort or you go to a restaurant alone and you want to recoil when the hostess says just one i know how hard this is for you mom especially at night now that dad's not with you at this my mother's voice began to crack never one to be seen or heard crying She ended the conversation. I don't want to discuss this any further. Minutes elapsed before I noticed I was still holding the phone, the dial tone echoing into the silence. I stayed seated at the table, not trusting myself to finish washing the dishes, fearing I would drop one and have to gather up the broken pieces. My inability to unite my mother and myself around our common grief brought back a flood of childhood memories of feeling invisible. I was startled that those memories could resurge in a flash, in a way that felt truly visceral. Little did I realize how close to the surface my emotions really were. I was grieving not only my father, the source of joy and safety in my life, but also the fantasy of my wished-for mother, the one who would soothe my heartbreak by sharing it. My mother's focus on her own grief to the exclusion of our shared bereavement, piled more gloom onto my already heavy heart. If you were here, Dad, you'd wipe away my tears with one of those white handkerchiefs you always kept folded in a perfect square in your back pocket, I spoke out loud. Why did you have to die first? I hoped that after some thought, my mother would see we were both grieving. I couldn't let go of the notion that her mother's job, even that of a widowed mother is to console her child when the child is hurting. But it wasn't to be. Over the next two months, our chats remained polite yet superficial. Now, I also mourned the death of hope.
0: Thank you. As time has passed, how have you reconciled this pattern between your mother? you You and your mother, have you found any peace or any way to digest it? In April of 2018,
1: I moved my mother from Florida to live. Ideally, I wanted her to live with us, but she refused, and we moved her into a continuing care retirement community two blocks from our home. In October of 2019, she fell getting into bed, shattered her pelvis, dislocated her hip, broke her shoulder, and she decided then that she was ready to die and she stopped eating and drinking. This may be a long explanation to answer your question, but I cared for my mother for the 18 months between the time we moved her to Maryland and the time she died. And for the seven and a half weeks that it took her to die, I was by her bedside. Mm -hmm. During that time, my mother thanked me for caring for her. They were the warmest words that I had ever heard her utter to me. And when she died, I felt, I felt like I had done everything that I could for her. And for me, that felt like a reconciliation. In doing for her what she was never able to do for me, be compassionate, giving, understanding. I felt that I had reconciled my feelings toward her.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's generous and very, this sounds, this word doesn't really do the job, but very mature. Of you. <laughs> um, and I, I'm dying one of my to, friends said I was crazy. <laughs> I'm dying to ask you where your sisters fall, you know, in this relationship. I mean, you're the oldest, you know, and so yes. I, I, I felt again and again as I, I read your book that you're doing so much. So much is asked of you, and. I'm just one, and I don't mean that in any way that you were martyring yourself, not at all. Um, you know, the the opposite is true. But I just, I'm wondering what the relationship for your sisters was like with your mom and if she happened to be any gentler with them. Uh No. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. She was extremely mean. Mm-hmm. But my youngest sister, there were three of us, She had the opportunity to observe, (laughs) Mm. and she very early on decided that the way that I tolerated my mother's behavior, and my middle sister tolerated it as well, was not for her. And so she learned to just give it back to my mother. Mm. And sometimes I was just like cringing that, oh my God, you're going to get killed. Uh, (laughs) I would like, go, go hide. But my youngest sister uh, had a very, well, I think all of us have different relationships with the same parent. But my sister, uh, Jane, the youngest, had a very different relationship. But my middle sister was also, uh, had a very conflictual relationship with my mother.
0: Yeah. Um, how did they feel about you writing this, by the way? And and also, I'll just lump in this second question because we're going to talk about your sisters for a moment. How did your sisters feel about you writing this book and also about the spiritual practice that you really adopted more fully at, at your father's death?
1: My sister Lois was one of my most ardent supporters throughout the writing of this memoir. She read chapter after chapter, sometimes the same chapter over and over. <laughs> she offered feedback. She's a literary specialist, and so I valued her input. My sister Jane was had a hands-off approach to the whole thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My sister Lois is in, acknowledged, uh, and as you know from from the memoir, my sister Lois had uh, left Judaism. Mm-hmm. My sister Jane also undertook. To say Kaddish for my father.
0: Mm. And in the chapter, women do say Kaddish. Uh, you call a synagogue in Ocean City, Maryland uh. to ask <laughs> you're yeah. laughing, when service times are so you can come say Kaddish for your father while on a trip that you want to take. Is it with Lois? Is that right? Yes. Yes, yes with Lois. You and Lois decide, you know, you're going to take a break and you're going to go somewhere beautiful, the beach, just the way you experienced it with your father. But they tell you that the temple, the synagogue says women don't say Kaddish. So you go back and forth with them a bit and, and then you just decide to cancel your trip to Ocean City. So, you know, you're not going to do it if you can't find the place and, and they're, they're not letting women do this. So what do you take away from this experience now? And, and do you think if this happened at this point in your life, you would have made the same decision?
1: Well, I'm happy to report that at this point in my life, the Orthodox branch of Judaism has changed and is more embracing of women saying Kaddish. So I don't know that I would have the same experience, and I'm happy to say that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if I did have the same experience, my, my goal, my determination was I was not going to let anything stand in my way. I was going to show God that my father deserved his positive judgment. And so, if the same thing happened to me today, I would do the same thing. You're not going to let me say the Kaddish? Fine, I'm going to find some place that will. Now, I belong to an egalitarian synagogue. So, when I was at home, it was never a problem. Women in my synagogue have equal rights, equal responsibilities. But when I was on the road, uh, if I if I wasn't able to say the Kaddish, or someone didn't have a minion, or someone couldn't get a minion, then I would just either not go to that city, or I would find another place. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. really determined, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the other lessons from this memoir that readers can take away: that when you are Singularly focused when you are committed to a goal and you make it a priority in your life, you can make it happen.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. And this, it really, it, it bears repeating that there weren't iPhones and there wasn't this easy way to find what you needed. I mean, it's it a totally, it's kind of, it seems like a wilderness when you look back on it now. I mean, that's how we did things, but w- without right. a map and Google map on your phone and everything. Right. Um, yeah. It's not easy. It's a lot more legwork.
1: Yes. I went to AAA and I got their triptychs. <laughs> to tell me how to drive from an airport to the place where I was going to be working and then to the place where I was going to be reciting Kaddish.
0: Oh yes. I mean, really, it took a lot more effort, didn't it? Yes. It sure did. <laughs> yeah. Extra points. God bless um, the internet. <laughs> yes, really, really. Um, so I would I'd love to just talk about as we wind down a little bit, the role of prayer and spirituality in coping with grief. You wrote in the in the memoir, My spiritual community offered a safe place to release my grief every morning and evening, making it easier to tuck it away during the day. Can you share why you feel a spiritual community in particular is healing in this way?
1: Yeah, we live in a very grief-phobic society. And once someone loses a loved one and they return to their normal activities, they return to work or school, they resume driving the carpool, whatever, people think that they've moved on, they've gotten over it. And people don't reach out to the mourner two months later, three months later, six months later. What I learned, one of the things that I learned, the importance of reciting the Kaddish in a community, in this minyan, this quorum of ten, means that you're surrounded by people who understand that grief is not linear, and grief does not have an expiration date. So in my memoir, I recount the story of a gentleman named Ralph, who on the 66th anniversary of his father's death was reciting the Mourner's Kaddish and cried. And when you're in that community, in that minion, people understand that You can shed tears even 66 years later. Nobody looks at you askance. Nobody says, gee, why are you a grown man crying 66 years later? Nobody says that. So that spiritual community acknowledged that loss is forever. Sure, the intensity of it can diminish, but the loss is always there. The hole in the heart might get smaller, but the hole never fills up.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. So you, you describe yourself as um, a writer. You call it your encore career <laughs> as a writer <laughs> yes. and author, which I really <laughs> like that, that way of explaining it. So do you have any advice to writers or memoirists starting out the way uh, you did in, in your encore career?
1: My advice is just keep writing. I've been journaling ever since I was a teenager and my journals informed my memoir. Now, I'm not as rigid as perhaps morning pages every day as soon as I wake up, but I write regularly. And I think that the most important thing for anyone who wants to be a writer is to write regularly. Whether it's in a composition notebook, like the kind you can buy in the drugstore, or whether it's an expensive journal with a leather cover that you can buy in a in a bookstore or a gift shop, write, write all the time. Write how you feel about things, your reactions to things, what what moves you. Just keep writing, all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Don't stop writing.
0: And do you want to share some of your favorite memoirs? Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) One of my
1: earliest memoirs that really inspired me is called The Florist's Daughter. It's by Patricia Hampel. And she also was writing a story about her father as a daughter, and it, it inspired me, um, Another favorite of mine is The Tender Bar by Moringer, Mm -hmm. who I just yesterday learned was the ghostwriter for Prince Harry.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't realize that.
1: I don't know if that's true, but someone told me that. And a more recent one uh, is Danny Shapiro's Inheritance, the memoir of her discovery of her biological father. I love reading memoir. I could give you a long list, but those three are the those ones are the that three. pop up.
0: I know. I do love reading memoir, too. I feel like I, I never get, well, what a silly thing for me to say. I have a podcast called Let's Talk <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, let me just state the obvious. Right. <laughs> it would be unfortunate if I didn't like them. Um, Oh, boy. Um, This has been so great. And I know there's a ton more we could talk about. Um, I want to ask you where you would like listeners to find you. Where is a great place for them to get your book and connect with you, et cetera?
1: You can buy my book on Amazon, although I am a supporter of independent bookstores. And so any independent bookstore in your community can get my book for you. You can also get it on bookshop.org. I have a website. It's www.sarahburnback.com, and it's spelled S-A-R-A-H-B-I-R-N-B-A-C-H.com. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and I have a Facebook page.
0: You've got it all. (laughs) <laughs> I think I think you're I think there's a few there that you and I don't do but um I think I'm proud of myself for doing as many as I do and I'm impressed that you do as well. Thank you so much for for being my guest and for sharing this time with me and for you know adding your lovely story to the books out there available to read on grief and Judaism and loss of parents and how we navigate the the pain in relationships with parents who just can't do what we need them to do. I mean, I really appreciate it.
1: It's been a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you, Ronit. And as one memoirist to another, I really appreciate what you do for writers and for memoirists. Thank you for the
0: good work you do in the world. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show.